You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Gospel Coalition National Conference. Uh, Father, we think of the devastation that was wrought at Babel and how the nations went their separate ways and how they have been at war ever since. And we know how that war continues in our flesh. We confess our own sin, our own uh, wrongful favoritism to those who look like us in all sorts of different forms. And we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would give me and especially these brothers wisdom now and everyone in this room wisdom now from your word that our churches might better reflect, display you, one God, three persons, glorious. We pray that you would use this time to grow us in empathy and understanding. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Brothers, thank you all for being here as part of this conversation. Um, Curtis Woods who is the executive assistant director. It's close. Yeah. Director, executive assistant. Assistant executive director for the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Right. Assistant to the regional manager. Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I I missed that one. Sorry, I didn't know I was being picked up. (laughs) An office joke. Kevin DeYoung, who is a pastor of a different church last time I saw you. Still the same church, almost a different church. Almost a different, and you are going to where, brother? I'm going do to, people know that? I, yeah, I'm going to Christ Covenant Church, PCA congregation outside of Charlotte. we will be uh-huh. moving this summer. Great. Thank you for being here. Russell Moore, president of the ERLC, um, and Isaac Adams, who is a fellow elder with me at Capitol Hill Baptist and a longtime conversation partner with me on this topic. So, again, each of you. Thank you for being here. He worked for T for G for a while. Now he's finishing up seminary. He's about to go on to the pastoral staff at, at Capitol Baptist in August. Yeah. Yeah. I, what this conversation emerged out of for me personally was a couple of years ago as we had a number of those police brutality videos and various kind of cultural flashpoints. Um, and the effect I saw that have on our own con- congregation Our congregation on Capitol Hill is about 30% minority. And as you guys recall, there's three or four of those things in pretty quick, rapid succession. And the effect that had on the congregation and the abilities of minorities and majorities to understand one another was all all very, uh, it was was a very difficult time. And then, of course, since then, we've had the election. And uh, I remember waking up Wednesday morning after the election, Tuesday night, woke up Wednesday morning just immediately feeling a burden in my heart for African American and uh, uh, other minority brothers and sisters, knowing, in my estimation, at least, this is my opinion, what Trump at least represents, right? Um, and knowing that how that would be received. And sure enough, the following Sunday, it was a tense Sunday in our church, and I was teaching a class on Christians and government, of all things, and had a cute... Q&A time, and an uh, you know, older African-American lady stood up and just said, I, I have a hard, I'm having a hard time trust the white leadership of the church. Um, and then a, a, um, a white lady stood up and said, I, I can't believe what I'm hearing here. And it was, it was a tense time, right? So those are some of the, that's some of the backdrop 
that I would be grateful for this panel of thoughtful men to speak into. Let's start with Bible. Let's soak a little bit in Bible. I want you all to think of your favorite verse or a favorite verse or a verse that comes to mind on this topic that you think is crucial. Isaac. <laughs> yes, from anywhere in the Bible? Anywhere in the Bible. I'll just start at the beginning. And guys, give, give us a sentence or two. I know all of you can preach. I will interrupt you. A sentence or two on why it's crucial. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, uh, I think is foundational for this conversation, uh, talking about the image of God that everyone in this room is made in uh, and how that is grounds for unity. Uh, so not a unity in Christ, but a unity also with this image bearing uh, that gives us this value and dignity that we have that's from God. Excellent. Thank you. Russ? Uh, I would say Colossians 3.11, uh, here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And I always think of the old uh, Phillips translation of that, there is only Christ and he is everything. And I think that, uh, I think that sums it up. Amen. Thank you. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Or bo- Did you pick that? Well, it's okay. That we're having a moment. Win. Yeah, we're on one accord. <laughs> I never met Curtis, but we got the same Bible. So have you guys met before? No. No. But we, that's good. But it's not rude. does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, endures all things. You, you can't be a racist and fulfill those verses. Because you, you, by definition, you don't, you don't believe the best about people. You, you believe the worst and what you want to make up and assume about people. And then if there's any hope for reconciliation or even smaller hopes of something good coming out of this discussion here, it has to be if we are not rude with one another, we do not insist on our own way. So we love. Amen. Good word. Thank you. Do you want a moment to recalibrate? <laughs> it's okay. We can always go to John 17, 21. Yeah. Um, Jesus' high, high priestly prayer is that we as a body of Christ will become one and reflect that triune love that we see within the Godhead. Thank you, brothers. Uh, friends, do race relations, ethnicity relations remain difficult inside of doctrinally robust Churches, the kind of churches that would send people to a conference like this. And if so, why? In America. Well, I think when we begin to look at the history of, of African-American, the African saga on American soil, I mean, we have to be honest that African people groups were not treated with dignity. And as such, an African-American who is attending perhaps a predominantly African-American church or who's made a decision to be in a predominantly Anglo-American church, there's always going to be a level of tension because perhaps we have different social imaginaries that have been created. There are different stories in our mind, the way we think about politics, the way we think about race and justice, which already creates a point of tension, I'd say. But we all understand the verses you read, you guys read, why does it continue to provoke us? Different social imaginaries, mm-hmm. That's really different good. traditions. That's really good. 
it's it's personal and painful, um, and I feel like I'm one. I'm the least qualified person, certainly on this panel, to be talking about it. But it it is. I mean, today is 49 years since MLK was shot. He could easily still be alive. I mean, th yeah. th so so he that's was 39. Yeah, he's 39 years old. So. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I've tried to get my mind around as an Anglo. The, these things of, you know, that we learned, I learned about in school and history books, these were not that long ago. Fire hoses, lynchings. We can thank God that I do think things are not the same, but, I mean, the, these are things that people, African-American community, I think almost all of them in their family tree, in their churches, have stories firsthand, it isn't just, you know, we heard about this long. So, so that's very personal. I remember even in the last year having some conversations and just realizing how different to hear from African-American friends of mine who say, yeah, they, they knew growing up the one, one thing that they, their, their mom or dad would never want them to be was a police officer. Like, that never remotely occurred to me why, why you wouldn't do that. And so I, I, I'm just, I, you know, I enter these, these discussions with, trepidation knowing my own not knowing my own blind spots and knowing how personal all these things are and knowing how it hasn't been personal for me in a way that it has been for so many other people and then I think of my church it, you know people I've talked to an African-American elder and all that he's given up to be in a predominantly white church that most people don't see and I'm sure I don't see but he's shared some with me and then I think about a police officer and if I say something about police brutality he thinks you're talking about me and my friends, and you don't think that we're doing a good job of the police? Yeah. I talk about the criminal justice system. I talk, think about people who work for the attorney general in my congregation and work on the prosecution side, and they say, you don't think that we're doing the best we can, and you think that we're all, so well, you, you step into this in any way with any, and you're hitting somebody, you know, somebody's mom who voted for Trump who, didn't like anything about him, but thought maybe I'll get a Supreme Court justice. You can agree or disagree whether that's right, but all of that, you start talking about this issue and somebody's thinking about somebody's mama. Yeah. Bringing the mom jokes, thank you. Yes. And I, I think for white evangelicals, uh, the problem is often uh, the sort of problem that Jesus identified when he said to the religious leaders, you decorate the prophet's tombs and said, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have persecuted the prophets. And that is a perpetual uh, blind spot that all of us have. And so I think for a lot of white evangelicals, there's a tendency to look backward in a North American context on uh, racial issues and just assume if I had lived in 1845 Georgia, I would have been an abolitionist. And if I had lived in 1925 Mississippi, I would have worked against lynching. And if I had been in Birmingham in 1963, I would have stood up to Bull Connor without, without realizing the way that the people in those situations, if you have a deep view of human depravity, as the Bible teaches, then that doesn't just mean a surface level individual sort of depravity, but a depravity that works together in groups. And Joseph's brothers work together as a, as a polis, as a group of people, and in ways that you don't even see what is happening. So for many white evangelicals, there's a tendency to think, well, all of that is over. And so now we've moved past that. 
because I don't see people being bombed in churches and I don't see people being hosed down and because Martin Luther King, for instance, is not typically demonized in the way he would be if he were still alive uh, in white contexts. Then for black evangelicals, uh, typically uh, what you have going on often is a recognition of that and often a lack of trust in white evangelicals, a lack of trust that has been earned. Mm -hmm. So they can see, for instance, churches that uh, in Birmingham or other areas where when, when these issues were right at the forefront of every single conversation said nothing or uh, spoke from the devil's party on these things. And now they see those churches because their communities have transitioned ethnically wanting to reach their communities and they have every reason to say, but have you moved here or are you just another market-driven uh, sort of approach that just has a different market in your community? So I think the, from, from both directions, those are some of the big challenges that we have in conservative churches. I heard, I heard a fascinating comment from your friend Stephen Harris making the point that when whites talk about big government bad, local government good, a lot of African Americans thinking back through history, well in fact it was often the federal government that intervened to help out, whether we're talking Civil War, Jim Crow, whatever, and it's the local governments that were acting in fairly discriminatory, oppressive ways, and so the average African American is thinking, uh, federalism doesn't sound so hot, G give me, you know, give me the, the federal government. And just whether or not every individual feels that way, it just made me realize how easy it is to have a whole set of assumptions that somebody who looks different than me might not share those assumptions that enter into this conversation. Yeah, I think it goes back to a person's presuppositional bias because when I hear you say that, uh, I think, you know, you think about Rutherford B. Hayes, once the federal troops were moved out, this is how we usher in a new form of slavery, right? Yeah. Because without the sword behind um, um, individuals who were, who were trying to create a new society within the South, without the sword, there was a new form of slavery with Jim Crowism, there was lynching, there was terrorism. So that when an African American in the 20th century or 21st century, if we hear a sitting president use the verbiage like uh, we're in a new age of terror, terrorism, we're like, oh, no, terrorism existed since 1619. Yeah. And, and so that creates in us a, a level of frustration because we're reading, we have the opportunity to read the same books. We have the opportunities to look at these counter histories and we have the opportunity to speak the truth and love so that when I hear federalism, I want to think critically about what does federalism mean to African people groups, to Native American people groups, as well as Asian Americans. If I can add just to why uh, things remain difficult, uh, going back to this point of human depravity, Second uh, Corinthians 3.18 talks about how uh, we are being transformed in the present tense, and that means we're works in progress, which also means we're still sinners in part. Uh, and our ignorance and things that may be benign are compounded by our sins. So sometimes I think there's a misconception uh, that because I'm a Christian that I've got this issue figured out. Uh, and then you look at Galatians 2, 11, but when Cephas Peter came to Antioch, 
I opposed him, Paul says, to his face because he stood condemned. And you really see that there are some racial connotations for why Peter stands condemned here. And his fear of man, which is sin, has compounded that. So why things remain difficult is not necessarily only just our, you know, our blind spots, which are there and are prevalent, uh, certainly, but because of these beasts within our own heart, our own sin, uh, which makes it very, very difficult because, as you said, you were talking about uh, the local authorities weren't helping people, and it, wasn't, and it was the local churches not helping people either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was actually the local churches hurting people in yeah. some senses. Yeah. And friends, just to be clear, I am, I am going to be kind of focusing my questions here on the black-white relationship, and that's not to say that other ethnic minorities or the rivalries or tensions that abide there are insignificant. Uh, they are just due to lack of time, and frankly, my own personal experience. I've entered into this conversation more than I have to the conversation between African Americans and Asian Americans and so forth. I'm just less familiar, so you're, you're, you're receiving the limitations of my own knowledge base, but that's why we're focusing on that. And, and on that, brothers, let me, let me ask you. Um, my sense, agree or disagree, my sense is that right now, uh, doctrinally robust white evangelicals and doctrinally robust black evangelicals in light of the last year or two are, I don't want to say splitting apart, but they're splitting apart. I thought you didn't want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of another word and I couldn't find it. Fisher points, fractures. Fisher points. Yeah. Difficulties. I agree with that and I look forward to hearing the others. Explain why. <laughs> well, like, it's, I feel like it's worse now than it was two years ago. Okay. Because in, inside people like us. Well, if, I, if, I, if I'm an odd man out, let me, let me be that right oh, now. Good. I don't think we ever had a point where there was sincere unity. No, that's a good point. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so in order for there to be some type of you know, uh, exodus, we, we, we would have had to been one at some point. And so I look at this space, I, I don't see within this space the level of unity in the midst of diversity that would say that it once existed. Can, now we can, go ahead. Can I interrupt in. you? Please. Don't you feel like people are more exasperated now than they were? Not within the African American community. Okay. I, I can give you an illustration. Uh, I was in conversation with colleagues when um, former President Barack Obama was running for the first time. And one of my colleagues asked me a question. He said, he said, Curtis, do you think that African Americans who typically do not vote are going to come out and vote? I said, bro, they're gonna come out in droves. And he said, why? I said, because now they have a reason to vote. Sure. And unfortunately, he turned red and there was like terror in his face. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> but, but, from that, but from that conversation, good, y'all caught that, amen. But, but from that conversation, I was able to help him to see that, that, that where there is a hopelessness, a nihilism in a person's heart, uh, there, there's not going to be unity. And, yeah. and I have not seen a large level of unity within Ameri- Af- American evangelicalism. I just haven't seen it. I could be wrong. I've only been doing this for 23 years. Yeah. Any other brothers? I, I mean, I can, I can think of three reasons that seem at least plausible to me. One is, is along the lines of my brother here is saying that there, 
You know, I, I, I've learned from, from trying to listen and talk to folks that, you know, sometimes I think, you know, white evangelicals, we can say, well, wait a minute, I, I never heard you say that, talking about African-American friends. You, you never said that before. And um, I said, well, that's I was only surrounded. I was in an all-white church before. And it wasn't about being hypocritical. It was, I don't know if it was safe to say some of the things that, mm -hmm. I, that I thought. And so maybe there is a little positive. Maybe that there are more African-Americans in some of the T4G, TGC world that are, are talking and, and feeling like, yeah, we, we can say some of the things that, that we've thought. And uh, so maybe it's just some of us, we haven't heard some of these things and we haven't maybe been listening to some of the, these things. So I think there's that. And then just culturally, certainly Ferguson and all of the other re related you know, videos and shootings, I mean, that is, is a cultural flashpoint and an exasperation point for just how, how do we respond to that? How do, you know, you jump in, you say, wait, you say, we need more evidence. I mean, all of those, it just, it, it feels like that was such a, a moment of pain um, and so difficult all across the board to know what to say, how to say it, when not to say anything, and when you not saying anything is the worst thing that you could not say. Yeah. And yeah. then Trump. I mean, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> it just is. I mean, that, that I, and I'm still, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. And I was very, you know, public I, you know, on my blog leading up to the election. It wasn't my preferred candidate. Um, neither was the other one. Many people were in those circles. But when, when it was 81% white evangelicals voted for Trump, I think there's still, there's still, I mean, just to be honest, there's still a, a disconnect, I think, that many people would say, well, Supreme Court, maybe it helped with abortion, so we just did it. And then other people say, are you listening to, to what, and what that feels like? And, what, and I do not know how to, to bridge that very deep, very real pain, except I guess I just sit in. I think we need to be really honest that it's really out there. And at least for my part as a, as a pastor, try not to step into it and try to take really seriously and listen. Because I, I, I got more pushback from people saying things critical about Trump. I don't know if Russ, if you did at all. No. <laughs> People love everything I do. Uh, <laughs> Baptist is easy to work with. Yes. Well, what, what's, I mean, what, what's that all about? What's going on? Did you want to explain something? Is there something there? <laughs> no, there is nothing there. No. So I, I, that certainly has been an exasperating factor in many of our churches. And the more uh, racially diverse the church, I think the more difficult certainly it has been. It does feel at times like if you don't say something, you can be indicted. But if you say something, it, four times out of five, it feels like the wrong thing to say you know, yeah. in some of these conversations. I, I, I kind of have mixed feelings because on the one hand, as somebody who gets a bag full of white supremacist uh, correspondence every day, uh, I'm kind of surprised by what uh, is, is, I'm not surprised at what is going on out there. I am surprised by the sort of thing that comes from people who are willing to then say, I'm a deacon at such and such evangelical church, or I'm a Sunday school teacher. At. That's what's surprising uh, to me at this point. On the other hand, 
I think the exasperation itself is a good sign. Because I think there was a, a, a time previously in evangelicalism in which minority voices, when they were there, were expected just to be there to support whatever the majority culture uh, was saying and doing. And so now when you have a situation where many of the minority voices within evangelicalism are saying, we're exasperated with you, I think that's a good sign because I think they're no more exasperated probably than their parents or grandparents were, but they're able to take the kind of uh, leadership at the very beginning now where, where they, these leaders can say, no, 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 this, it isn't enough for you just to quote Galatians 3.28 and then we go out and do business as usual. I think that's a good sign. And I think it's also a good sign that when you look generationally uh, at least, even within majority culture evangelicalism, at least there is now an understanding that we do have a problem. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I started talking about this stuff 25 years ago, the, the main thing that I would encounter from white evangelicals is what problem? We have no problem. Yeah. They have their churches, we yeah. have our churches, and everybody's fine. Now what I typically find from white evangelicals is how do we go forward? What do we do? Yeah, and so they see at least that there's a, that's not where we need to be, but it's better than, than where we could be. And so I think that's a sign of hope. That's a good word. Thank you, brother. The reality, I think, is that every marriage, if I can use that as a metaphor, uh, every marriage has cracks in it. Um, and you don't see those until the pressure is put on your marriage, until you can't make the mortgage payment or do whatever. Uh, and then, therefore, what you see... Uh, are the problems that are there. So like Russ is saying, uh, I think a lot of pressure has been put on cracks that were already pre-existent within churches. And then uh, also to pick up on something is to say that this isn't something new, uh, like Curtis was saying. These divisions aren't new, like, oh my goodness, we're divided. It's been that way and was that way intentionally from day one in many and most churches that this is intended to be a white church and black people can't worship here. Therefore, go over there. And I mean, when things start and stop, that's hard to think through historically. I mean, we're still living in the flow. If, if we're in a river, again, to switch my metaphor, you know, we haven't just started some new river. It's like we're in the flow. I'm in the flow of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, for better or for worse. So I have to live with its reality that's come in the past. And that means as the neighborhood changes uh, or as people were precluded from the neighborhood, that affects the local church. And I live within that. And I'm not just plucked out of history in that sense. Yeah, some people sometimes say that um, the Obama administration made things worse. I, I tend to think it just exposed what was there. Yeah. I think that's similar to what you brothers are, are saying. Now that's out there, but inside the church as well. Let me, let me ask you about another challenge. Uh, my sense is that, that the Democrats generally do a, a better job of at least presenting themselves as concerned with, or being the party who's concerned with minorities, and the Republicans do a better job of at least presenting themselves as the party concerned about abortion. And I'm using the language presenting themselves very deliberately because I, I don't want to get into a conversation about whose practices and policies actually do what the parties claim to do. I'm just kind of leaving that to the side. But nonetheless, I think those perceptions are there. 
just as a sociological statement. And what that does, in my estimation, is often minorities flock leftward, majority whites flock rightward, and now we have partisan rivalries hurting trust even more, uh, exacerbating the problem even inside of churches. And again, I'm just speaking out of the personal experience in some ways of my own congregation. Question for you brothers, am I right in seeing the landscape like that and what's to be done about it? Well, I think, I think that's an accurate assessment and, and I'll use anecdotally, uh, Beatty wrote the, um, uh, it may have been a, a TGC blog where he was somewhat endorsing Hillary Clinton or he was at least saying why he would decide to vote for Hillary. Right. Uh, he caught a lot of flack within, from the brethren. Now, to me, what that says is that there aren't categories within the way we think about uh, political theology, the way we think about politics in America, for Thabiti to be able to say as a Bible-believing, committed Christian Orthodox man, that when I look at all the factors that face the community, this is the area where I'm going to go, and I am a pro-lifer. But I'm thinking wound to the tomb as well. And it's not to denigrate an individual who has a belief in you know, one-issue politics, but give me the ability to say that I have a belief that politics is always complex and Occam's razor never works when I enter into the voters booth. And so if, if we don't have categories for a person to be able to go on a democratic ticket within this space, then, I, then I'll have major problems with that just because of the complexity of the poli political experience in America. Well, I think one of the other problems though, that we have is, is something that's happening outside of the church which is the fact that the parties themselves have changed in the sense in which there was, there was once greater breadth uh, within each of the, the parties and a wider, a wider spectrum. You, you, that, could, you, you could be pro-life in the Democratic Party. Pro-life in the Democratic Party and, and uh, you know, the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act was largely a battle between Republicans, between Barry Goldwater Republicans and Everett Dirksen Republicans and a battle between Democrats with Southern Democrats and Northern Democrats on opposite sides of those issues. That has changed um, to the point in which the interest groups within the parties have narrowed both of them down into very consistent, cohesive pieces. And the other thing that's happened is that politics, as we were talking about earlier this morning, has become more than politics in American life. Mm -hmm. Politics has become a source of meaning, a source of, um, of belonging, uh, in many ways, kind of a church, so that it becomes a shorthand. When I identify myself with my set of politicians, that is who I am. So when I encounter someone who sees the politicians or the political movements that I'm part of in a different way, that person isn't just disagreeing with me, that person is repudiating the very core of who I am. Wow. So when you turn that, that heat level up and then add on to it all of the existing sorts of, of problems that we have in American life and then within the church, that becomes a, a really volatile mix. It's taken a religious fervor. Yes. Yes. You were asking about what do we do, and I think so often that's the question. I at least hear, certainly from white evangelicals, you know, what do we do in this, con in this conversation? Um, and one thing I do want to say on, to that is I think you have to hold up Jesus high in your church. You have to hold them higher than political affiliation. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, 
Mark said this, and he said this, uh, Mark Dever, our pastor, he said this maybe the week after the election, that the Jesus we share is more important than the politics we don't. Now, I think people will hear that and go, rah, rah, yeah, that's really good. Okay, business as usual. Um, but I think there's a lot of discipling work to be done to say, what in my own life have I started to muddy the line between, between what's Christian and what's political? In other words, do I assume what's conservative is necessarily Christian and what's liberal is necessarily anti-Christ? And am I living that out in terms of my identity within the church and to my brothers and sisters? Uh, because if we're not doing that and if we're not pressing that, and I think pressing it prophetically from the pulpit for, you, for those of you who are um, pastors and preachers, uh, I'm just not sure that's going to be a conversation within the pew. We need some humility about all of the prudential factors that come into political calculation and decision. And I said as someone who has always been very interested in political science and studied it and still follow it and follow it probably the twists and turns too closely. But across the spectrum, this is true. I, I think you can make a biblical case that religious liberty is a biblical virtue issue. Now, does, does that mean you should be really excited about Gorsuch? Uh, we, we could have a lot of good conversation and good reasons, yes. But as soon as you do that, I'm not saying there's not a better answer or a worse answer there, or that they don't matter what we think, but you are making prudential decisions about how the Constitution works, how our government, the three, the three systems work together, branches, um, what sort of man he is, all these things. And Christians should be involved in it. We, should, we can advocate for certain things. Or, you know, on, on the other side, if you're saying, well, the Bible says that we should care about the poor, we should care about refugees, we should care about immigrants, does that translate exactly to, therefore, this many people from Syria should come in, this should be the minimum wage, this is what a moral federal budget looks like? Well, again, we bring our Christian principles to bear, but all of those are going to involve prudential matters, and that are, the world of politics is weighing competing values, competing virtues. It's the world of trade-offs. And so if we go in all or nothing, it, it's, it's always all right, all wrong on any given person, policy, issue, program. Well, then it ratchets everything up to the highest level. And if you don't agree on this policy matter or this justice or this budgetary item, you're not a Christian. And, and we haven't realized that we went from the Bible verse that we maybe could all agree on and we've taken two or three or 14 steps that we didn't articulate because they seem so obvious in our minds, but they're really not. And they involve a lot of other human factors and wisdom and things that we may or may not have to agree on as Christians. And if we don't separate those things, we'll say, you voted for X or you didn't support this sort of thing. How can you even be a good Christian? How can you even think that way? You guys have been around Mark and hearing him talk about Robert Benet's book, Good and Bad Ways to Think About Politics, and the distinction between what he calls straight line issues between biblical principle and policy application, and jagged line issues between biblical principle and policy application. So abortion, biblical principle, you shall not murder, policy application, you know, you know, abortion's wrong. One step, right? Whereas healthcare, uh, there's a bunch, right? And over here we have 
matters of principle, matters of, as you said, prudence. <clears throat> Kevin, is there a difference between what you can say as a, patter over, a pastor over here in the, the wisdom realm versus, say, what Russ can say in his job or just say any, any member of our church is doing this kind of work of political advocacy? Yes. I mean, well, I can. I don't think it serves me well to... I mean, I have... Should a pastor be more careful yes in stepping into yes and it's not just from the pulpit it's your facebook page and it's your tweets and it's your your blog all of those things if you want what you said you lift jesus high that people know what's the what's the opposite what's the offense in this church the offense is jesus there's plenty of offense in the gospel to go around forever and it's not sort of well jesus but you you do kind of have to agree with you have to like this senator, you have to like this supreme, whatever. Yeah. And pastors, we do have to be very careful. And Mark, again, is a good example because that guy does think a lot about politics and he keeps it really close to the vest. I mean, he, and you have to in, at Capitol Hill. So I think all of us as pastors, just because we have a microphone doesn't mean we have to speak into it. I partly agree, partly disagree with that because I, I agree that we have... Uh, direct biblical truth, and then we have matters that are prudential in terms of application. But I also think there's a middle category here, which is the condition of the heart and the motive as that person is living out his or her life in all of these various arenas. So in in these questions of public justice and politics, I think it's a, a similar thing to what we would do with people in their jobs, in their role as, as or even in their families. There are certain things that we're going to say you can't do. You can't steal. There are going to be other things we're not going to speak to at all. We're not going to preach a sermon on how you manage hedge funds. But then there's going to be in the middle of that a lot of issues of heart motive that expresses itself in different ways to which the church must speak to the conscience. Can you give an example? Well, think of, uh, for instance, I was dealing uh, not long ago with three different people who were trying to have a Christian understanding of dealing with the minimum wage in their community. There was a campaign for a living wage. One of those people was saying, we've got single moms in our community, they can't feed their children, we need to raise the minimum wage. Another one of these guys is saying, we've got single moms in our communities and I think if we raise the minimum wage, businesses are gonna cut uh, the hours of those single moms and they're not gonna be able to feed their kids. Those two guys, I don't worry about. They have the same Christian motive of concern for the poor, different application that isn't about the poor, it's about an understanding of economics. But then there's a third guy who has an Ayn Rand sort of view that the single moms are themselves the problem, that the fact that they are poor is a demonstration that they're not, that they're not virtuous, that they're takers, that we, we always have this social Darwinist kind of view of reality. That's the guy I'm gonna rebuke. Yeah. And say, so you're, you are, you're not walking in a way that is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes that applies directly to this issue that we're talking about because what I've noticed is exactly what Isaac mentioned a few minutes ago with fear of man sort of issues that Simon Peter faced with the group coming down from Jerusalem, doesn't want to eat with the Gentiles. You have a, a black evangelical who faces a lot of pressure when he stands up and speaks about abortion or when he participates in a gospel coalition or something right. like that, from people who are saying, you're just, you're selling out and you're walking away from, uh, from this rich tradition of, of African-American social action involvement. 
And then you have white evangelicals who can talk about uh, political issues all day long, but when they talk about racial justice issues, suddenly the people who have been blasting them for not being political enough are now blasting them for being too political. Um, and, and often the too political just means you're uh, talking about black people. Yeah. You know, and so that, that becomes an issue where sometimes it's a silencing of not even wanting to address the issue because you don't want to upset uh, the, the protection racket of people who are out there who are going to be the people who are going to come after you. I think that, that becomes a really difficult question of sometimes it's a prudentially what do I address, but often it's a question of who am I scared of? Mm. And I think that's a real, a real problem. I wrote an article last week uh, on some of these issues that Kevin didn't like. That's not and entirely true. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people didn't like it. It's <laughs> uh, yeah. half true. Half true. That really is. Um, what I was struck by is Psalm 72, this messianic king caring for the cause of the poor and the downtrodden. And maybe that's an illustration of the right heart posture. So I want Christians to have a concern for the cause of, mm, of the poor and the downtrodden and the minority and the immigrant, whether or not they think a Republican or a Democratic economics are the best way to help. But the point is they're aiming at it, mm -hmm. right? Is that? Yep, I agree, I agree. You had something to say, brother? Well, I just wanted to say, uh, because earlier, I want, to, I want to speak to that, because if we're talking, if we're talking about, um, you know, one subset of pastors, and I know uh, I agree with everything Kevin said, and I know I just said, lift Jesus high, but I don't want people leaving the room thinking, therefore, pastors who do not do that or who do talk about some kind of political issue are necessarily uh, antichrist in the pulpit or doing uh, only harm to their churches. And I say that because marginalized communities have to think through these things. And some, so a black church is going to look at these issues and say, I've got to talk about these issues because this is what my people are going through. We don't have the luxury of not thinking about these issues. So I'm not even necessarily saying him talking about it in the pulpit is the right thing to do. I'm simply saying uh, the text Kevin mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, about assuming the best. I want to assume that that pastor is just trying to disciple his people well. He's trying to use his pulpit to do that. So I don't want to assume that a pastor who is necessarily talking about difficult things or things that might be labeled as divisive uh, is necessarily doing harm to his people if, he, in fact, he's trying to love them and disciple them. Because the reality is marginalized communities, uh, churches of minorities, they have to think through these things. No one's showing up. After Ferguson, everyone is thinking about it in that pulpit or in that pew. Uh, for that point. So I just want to make that point. Well, and, and white churches do too. They just don't know it. Yeah. I mean, right. there, there are a lot of issues here that are, that are prudential issues. That we, but there are, there are a lot of issues that we're dealing with at the very core of this in terms of American society that sends people to hell. And so if you, if you stand up and you're dealing with some of the racist hatred that can exist in many churches in this place, in this country, and, and you do not address that, and you're calling people to repentance for drunkenness, and you're calling people to repentance for adultery, and you're calling people to repentance for stealing, and you don't address the 
hatred for the brothers that exists from a racist heart, then what you are doing is compromising the very gospel of Jesus Christ because you are sending people in their sin without calling them to take that to the cross of Jesus and to, to go and sin no more. And I think that then becomes a far more serious issue than even the very real struggles that we have here. It's a matter of literal life and death. I think we can see our individual responsibility not to hate, be racist. Part of what makes this conversation so complex and difficult for me and others is this whole language of structural injustices. Uh, what are those? Are they important to this conversation, especially from the standpoint of speaking as Christians? Uh, is there such a thing as structural injustices? How do we respond to them? Yeah, and, there's, and, and maybe define yeah. it first. Could somebody define that? Sure, sure. It's popular language. Yeah, so when we talk about individual institutional racism, sometimes people forget that individuals make up institutions. And so the, the ideas, the policies, and the laws that those individuals make then have bearing on other persons. Typically, we, could, we can say uh, uh, harsher bearings on individuals who don't have a person to speak in their state or have a prophetic voice, right? So, so within racism, for a person to say, well, individual racism is when a person is running with skinheads or, or they're white supremacists. Yeah, we could see that coming at us. But the structural racism are the laws that are being made that are not in favor of those persons who are considered other. And, and I don't think that we can deal with the problem of race in American history without understanding both individual and institutional racism or structural racism. Laws, but also informal cultural practices, sure. norms, sure. And habits. Yeah, yeah. The way, the, the way that we describe the beautiful, right? Because I think this goes back to aesthetics. One person says this is beautiful. Another person says this is grotesque. What is grotesque about a brother coming in with, say, uh, uh, dreads in his head or having his hair, his hair twisted? Nothing grotesque about that. But there may be some who say, can this person be trusted? Now, now what, what in your mind, what has been placed within your mind, within your thinking, within your imagination that says this individual is untrustworthy? So now we have an individual and we have perhaps institutions with these cultural messages and images that cause a level of fear. And there we go again. Because now fear will, will cause a person to say, I can't be in relationship with you before I even get to know you. So both individual and institutional racism is important to deal with. Um, a good book to read, if you haven't read it, is Divided by Faith. If you haven't read that book, I would just encourage you to get that book and read it. I think it's in the bookstore. Uh, I think it's in the bookstore, I don't know. But it's on Amazon, so get Divided by Faith. Um, because in there, there's a parable that kind of illustrates this that I think is a helpful illustration. Let's say, Jonathan, you and I uh, both need to lose weight, and we go, I'm not saying you and I both need to lose weight, but let's say we decide we need to do that, we go to two different summer camps. Your summer camp, everyone uh, there is fit. And everyone there uh, encourages you to lose weight. Every, there's only Whole Foods for you to shop at. Uh, Cheetos are not allowed. Uh, all the gyms are free of charge. Uh, and a matter of fact, everyone always goes and that's where everyone hangs out. Uh, and that's your camp. My camp, uh, let's say the only restaurants at my camp are McDonald's. And then there are no gyms, and if I want to go into a gym, it's really, really expensive for me to get into. Uh, and let's say that everyone there is 
actually pretty much out of shape and uh, there's real no encouragement to get necessarily into better shape. Now, there's of course some individual agency going on there, right? Uh, and you and I, and I could still lose weight if I really want, if I could just really just will myself out of there. But you can't deny that it's gonna be harder for me to lose weight at my camp than at your camp. And sometimes the reality with structural injustice is that you don't have to be a, you know, KKK, flaming racist, for those things to exist because again, to use the river, they've already been set up in the past and they've just been going for so long that people can't even really see them. Uh, so whether or not I want to, I might want to lose weight more than you, but it's going to be really, really hard for me to get out of there. Uh, and some of those things, the gyms costing uh, a lot more in my community than your community, those are the structural injustices uh, that sometimes were intentionally set up and sometimes were a result of life in a fallen world where things happen. And uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. And we, we all actually all agree on the fact that we have structural injustices, even if we don't think we do. Because look at what's happening right now in terms of white poverty in the United States of America and white opioid addiction. So you go and you look into a community where all the factories have gone, there is, no, uh, there is no place for the young men to work in that community. You got a high divorce rate. You have a, a breakdown in the family structures. You have a school system that isn't working and is broken. And then you end up with a, a skyrocketing number of people who are out of work, addicted to uh, painkillers, and so forth and so on. And people recognize, okay, the problem isn't just the lack of individual virtue. The problem is there is a... There is a terrible cycle in that community that is changing people's view of what normal is. Mm -hmm. And so in order to escape that, extraordinary things have to be done. Be people can, can see that. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about when we say oh, there are so many uh, structural issues surrounding this issue as well. We don't always know what, what, what all of those are, um, but we have to recognize that they do exist. And Jonathan, I, I appreciated most of the article. I really, and, and that the the line too about the king is a good a good word for us. I mean, just imagine if, just as a supposition, free market economics is good, makes sense. It's the way to, to create wealth in a society. Just think if if conservative principles were more or less true. What, what I hear you saying is, well, from the Bible is, yeah. Even if all of that were don't, don't use those sort of conservative principles as a stiff arm to, yeah, yeah, I hear you, uh-huh, yep, it hurts, yeah, racism, yeah, I know, it was bad, uh-huh, uh-huh. But have you read, you know, Hayek? Um, <laughs> do, you, do you, I mean, it comes down to very, it's complex, but it's also simple. And what you're pointing out to us is the, the, the virtuous kings, they, they at least cared, they cared. And, and if we don't at least have that, then the prudential matters and what we agree to disagree. I mean, do you really care? And that's where, you know, part of your article talked about the language of white privilege. That's a whole other thing that, oh, look, well, look at the time. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, it, it depends on how you define it. And you helpfully parsed out some different ways to define it. I think at, at the, uh, I, in some ways I don't agree with the term. Here's how I do agree with the term. And you said some of this as well. It is really helpful. This is a Christian thing for someone like me to realize I, I'm not in the position I am because I just worked harder and I just was smart and if you were just like this, I mean, come on. I mean, to whom much is given, much is expected and 
all the ways, all the ways that I never even saw, okay? Mom and dad that love each other, never worried about where food was coming from. We went to a public school that were good public schools. The world around me was always, seemed safe. Everybody around me looked like me. They had a last name that started with D-E or Van or Vander. <laughs> it, just, it was just a world that made sense, seemed to be easy enough for, for people yeah. like me. Now, did I hopefully make some good decisions by God's grace? All of that, yeah. Do we have to tell people to motivate? Yes. But I think maybe it would be at least a starting point for people in this room, and there's other people who, who have similar just upbringing like that, to say there were 10,000 things that were God's kindness to me. Now, we all have those. It's not to say those are the only ways that God is kindness. Some people are, you know, born much, much more athletic than I am or much more attractive or any number of things. But to recognize that we didn't just start here at the race and look at your, your farther behind because, well, you're slow or nobody ever taught you to, to run. Come on, come on, catch up. No, there's, there's 10,000 things. And maybe if we would just have, you know, someone like me, to at least if nothing else to contribute, to just have the humility to say, that's God's grace in 10,000 ways, and to have then some compassion for those who had fewer than 10,000 of those same things. I'd recommend a book. I appreciate what everyone has said. Um, it's by Beverly Tatum. Uh, the title of the book is Why Are All the Black Kids T Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Mm -hmm. Colon and Other Conversations About Race. I think she does a fine job in spelling out some of the things that, that we're discussing because she helps us to see what individual racism looks like. We've already said that. But more so, what institutional racism, even when he made the, the quip about Hayek, I was thinking, yeah, you need to read Hayek, understand capitalism, but you also need to read uh, Edward E. Baptist, his work entitled The Half Has Never Been Told. Because what Baptist is going to do is he's going to look at the principles of economics from supply-demand management as it relates to slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. So how did we get this cotton kingdom in the cotton south? Because now we need to ask some questions that will help, I think, to, to somewhat massage our presuppositions. If you massage my mind in such a way that now I can start having a different perspective and more humility and compassion as I hear your story, that's gospel-centered in my thinking. But we need clear-thinking evangelical historians and non-evangelical historians to help us to think about these ideas. If I to summarize what you guys are saying, there's clearly a call to develop empathy. And part of empathy is recognizing that people are coming from back, different backgrounds, different perspectives. With We can use the language of structural or not. The, the, the point is different cultural influences and practices and habits and laws and so forth uh, over generations that dramatically impact people's ability to, to succeed materially, economically, spiritually, and so forth, right? And, and, and part of pastoral Christian empathy is recognizing the diversity of different starting points, even the way I have to exercise that sort of thing with my four girls, right? And the different gifts and talents that they have. And some things come more easily, other things don't, to this or that daughter. Um, as part of developing empathy, brothers, it's, it's, it's a common theme these days. Everybody says, it's time for whites to listen, don't talk, just listen. Um, I understand that when I want to live with my wife in an understanding way, I need to shut up and listen. Yeah, I get it. 
Uh, my, my fear is that sometimes though, when people say that, it's going to feel, it feels to some way, it's like kind of a reverse power move. Oh, so you just want to talk, and I'm, now it's my turn just to, well, obviously listen, but, but, but let everything go in your direction. What happened to the conversation? How, how do we, because it's such a common theme, I wanted to raise this with you just very briefly. We only have a couple minutes left. How do we respond to that? Is, is that a right thing to say? I don't think we should assume ignorance in anyone, and, and I know we only have a couple of minutes, but let's say, for example, I meet a woman in Starbucks, and she's reading a book on Frederick Douglass, and, and I notice that she's a middle-aged woman, white woman, Anglo uh, woman, reading Douglass, and, and I go up there because I want to school her a little bit on Douglass. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you're reading Douglas. So I started talking about his background, and she patiently listens to me. And then when she leaves the conversation, she says, I appreciate that. And I said, by the way, I didn't catch your name. And she says, oh, it's Joanne Pope Mellish. Then I said, I'm sorry, Joanne. I didn't realize that was you. Because she knows more about African-American history and slave narratives than I will ever know. Considering, in fact, she taught at Cornell as well as at the University of Kentucky, and she's published a work entitled Disowning Slavery. What I did to her was I assumed ignorance and that she did not have the ability to speak into my conscience. And I don't think we should do any image bearer like that. Anyone has the right to speak, and we should listen well because listening well to others is an act of love. And he just read 1 Corinthians 13. So I want to listen well to you, but listen well to me as well. What we can't do is we can't be insolent. Because where there's insolence, that, de that deserves the prophetic force of a, say, let's see, a Russell Moore. Yeah. You have, to, you have to speak the truth in love, but you must do it courageously. I think the, the point about listening is exactly right when it comes to preparation. Uh, and so white evangelicals need to be listening to our African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to know what is going on to, to unhinge our wrong assumptions. Uh, but we have to bear one another's burdens. Yes. And so if you have a situation where we expect black evangelicals to come in and to talk about uh, race all of the time, as though that's the only thing that black evangelicals have to offer to the rest of the, to the, rest of the church. When we need black evangelicals leading evangelicalism on preaching yes. and theology and church history and discipleship. And we need white evangelicals who could just ignore this issue in their circles to stand up and say, y'all don't care about this issue but it's affecting you because you're part of a body of Christ that is bigger than the state of Alabama or the state of Georgia or the state of Michigan or wherever you are, which means that you have to be brought into uh, the rest of the body and speak to it. And so we need, and sometimes white evangelicals will say, well, I just am discouraged because if I don't say anything, then my black brothers and sisters in Christ say you're silent. And if I do, they say, well, you should be listening and not talking. And I understand that, but my response is, well, did you want a medal? I mean, uh, the, the issue here is, is not whether, how people are, are responding to you in the moment. The issue here is, uh, are you actually seeking to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ and speaking the truth as God would, would give it to you to, to say? And so we're going to do that wrong sometimes. We're all going to do that wrong. We bear with one another and we, we move forward. But I think we, 
we need to bear one another's burdens here. I, one example of that is John Perkins, who's a great civil rights leader and gospel preacher. Last time I was with him, he pulls me aside and says, you need to do something. I said, what's that? He said, you really need to spend some time dealing with uh, white poverty. And he goes on this whole thing about what white poverty is doing to the church and whatever. But John Perkins, African-American, has been beaten uh, in Mississippi jails who's concerned about white poverty. And why? Because he's concerned about his brothers and sisters Amen. in Christ. Amen. I think that's a good model. That's good. Uh, brothers, thank you again. Can, can we all thank them for their Curtis, will you close us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for uh, your son. God, we thank you that the Holy Spirit has revealed Christ to us, regenerating us so that we could respond rightly to the gospel and walk in the newness of life together. Lord, we thank you, God, that this day is a day that we have reflected on the power of Jesus Christ to, to create unity within your church. Your church is the pillar and the protector of the truth. And the reason why we are gathered together is because we want to experience reformation. That is to say reformation in our own souls so that we might be the people you've called us to be in a lost and dying world. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I thank you first and foremost that I'll know them forever. And I pray you will protect us from the evil one. Give us great joy in Christ because in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand flows mercies forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you.